0: Good evening, everyone. I gave you guys 13 minutes. Because it looked like you guys got really mad when I told you five minutes. So hopefully everybody got their drinks. Inshallah. Okay, cool. Uh, Welcome to Alia's and the first ever live recording of the Beirut Banyan. Um, This is Rony Shata um and i think i'm just gonna hand it over to him now
1: no let them applaud let them oh guys applaud
0: applaud sorry they seem timid for some reason am i making you guys nervous
1: or is it him that's well sure. a audio expert par excellence so he deserves a round of applause oh, thank too. you who told you that by the way and of course Charles hayek i think he deserves a round of applause And now it's my chance to embarrass people. That's my mom sitting on the bar. She's right there. Well, she claims to be my mom, sorry. Way in the back is my aunt, Aunt Huda. Wave, wave. Yeah. Cousin Fadi, who never watches the episodes, never listens. Wave, first time. And it's couples night for Marwan. Marwan, there you are. Date night for Marwan and his lovely wife. By way of introduction, I'm going to guess most of you know the podcast. For those that don't, it's called the Beirut Banyan. I started it roughly four years ago, but it's an extension of a storytelling tour that I used to give called Walk Beirut. And I think William is here, the owner of William. Ah, there he is. William. He came on the tour, what, 12 years ago? 13 years ago? 10 years ago. Okay, a decade ago. And he reminded me, a few weeks ago, I was walking by Adia's, that he was one of many guests that joined that tour. We're here tonight because this was his suggestion. Why not do the podcast in Adia's? I thought it's a fantastic idea. So thanks to you, William. I really appreciate this. It's been, I think, three and a half years that I got a little too deep into politics. October 17 changed the podcast. For anyone that used to listen in the early stages, the reason it's called the Beirut Banyan. These are episodes that are meant to expand like a banyan tree. It's named after the banyan trees of AUB and Ross, Beirut. Whenever you look at the logo, that's actually... medical gate. If you know that obscure tree that keeps growing horizontally, that's a banyan tree. I thought the episodes should all link like stories, the way I used to give the tour. October 17 changed that. It became mostly about politics. But in the last stretch, I've decided to step back a bit and go back to what I love doing, which is storytelling. Hence, I thought the first guest for the live series should be Charles Hayek, by far my favorite storyteller. So that's my way of saying thank you. Thank you. Charles Hayek is a Phoenician and a Lebanese nationalist.
2: <laughs> And the Canaanite. And a Canaanite?
1: Yeah. That's yeah. about it. Yeah.
2: That's the episode, guys. That's the episode. <laughs> the episode will be conducted in Canaanite.
1: In Canaanite. Yeah. Charles, bring the microphone a little closer to you, yeah? In Canaanite. The, thank you. <laughs> now, you know Charles from Serde, I'm sure. He's been on three times, I believe, on Serde, resident member of Serde <laughs> at this moment. He's been on my podcast once. I've seen Charles in different storytelling venues. I think this is the best way to do storytelling live. But I'm going to ask you, please do not film. Take photos, do whatever you want, but no video, because this is going on the podcast later. Hence these cameras and microphones. So, let me start there. I'm not going to be redundant. I don't want to repeat what Charles talks about all the time. I'd like to start with my podcast name, the Beirut Banyan, and the name of this neighborhood, Jemaze. Jamezi, to me, is a competitive tree. Indeed. And the neighborhood is supposed to be known for its Jamezi trees. It's hard to find them in this neighborhood. A few are left. But if you can, for a moment, before we go too far back in time, why is this neighborhood called Jamezi? What does that word mean right now? If there are no Jamezi trees, and anything you can tell about this neighborhood in particular, bring Jamezi to life as much as you can in Jamezi.
2: What's particular about this neighborhood is that it carries the name of a ghost tree now, and it echoes what was once a forest. Can you imagine for a moment that this street, do do you know the official name of the street? It's not Jemayze, it's Gouro. So the area here, Jemayze, echoes a period when Beirut and most of the coastal areas in the Levant had, as an iconic tree, the sycamore, the jemmezi. The sycamore tree is a distant cousin of figs. However, it grows bigger and lives longer. And it has fruits that can be eaten. It's delicious, by the way. Few jemmezi trees are left in Lebanon. There's a couple in Sur, two big ones in Magdushi, three in Beirut, and some in Trablus. Only and three one, in Beirut. Only three in Beirut that I have seen. Wow. And one in Shika. So why this tree was important? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: a round of applause for Wayne. <laughs> <No, I'm joking.
2: laughs> so you have to imagine that old Beirut wasn't as big as Beirut now. It was a relatively small city nestled between two hills. A hill called in and another hill called Al-Ashrafiyye. And in between there's a valley. And old Beirut was in this valley, that where downtown is now. To, on these two hills, the, b- b- through these hills were the main roads connecting Beirut to the major cities of the Levant back then. There was Darb al Nahar, the current Maram Maramchael Guru, or Derbo Trablos. There was Derbyhem, so they call al-Shem, taking you to the museum up the Mount Lebanon range, Bekaa to Damascus, and Tari Saida. this one would actually go through Bashura, Maris Patina, Ramel, and go to Saida. But Beirut back then was, as most of the cities, a walled city. In a city that closed physically its gates at 5. No one can enter before 5 a.m. the next day. Mm. So if you are a caravan dealer, a trader coming from India, and you arrive with your spices to Beirut, because even if it was a small city, it was an important spice market. And do you know where is that reflected? It's reflected in two based in delicacies that are very famous in Beirut. Let's see if you know them. The basic ingredient is a spice or spices. One that we do to celebrate births, a second that is prepared at Irba'at Ayyub, a very Beiruti delicacy. You pronounce it the Beiruti way. So you have to wait. You have to wait outside. The best place to wait was under the massive, it was a massive forest, of the Jammayzi. There were two Jammayzi forests. One called Jammayzi al-Yammeen, which is now where Samaya and Zarif, and the actual Jammayzi Darb al-Nahar, or the, the Hala, You have to know that this Jammayzi in the 19th century, early 19th century, was ill-famed for a reason. This is where you would find the thieves, and the prostitutes of the city. Because under the trees were actual cafes. So the area was, or is since (laughs) the 19th century, linked to leisure. So this is where the name comes from, from this very important tree. But as Beirut grew after 1840, in 1840 there was a conjuncture of events. Um, You know, this area was briefly under what we call Egyptian rule. It was an Albanian uh, governor who used Sudanese mercenaries, French Napoleonic officers to train and create in Egypt a modern army that almost defeated the Ottoman Empire. This guy is Muhammad Ali Basha and his son, Ibrahim Basha, conquered the Levant and took measures to modernize the city of Beirut. But in 1840, for the British, for the Austrians, and of course for the Ottomans, this was too much, and they had to contain him. So one of the places where they actually bombed his army was Beirut, they landed uh, a a joint uh, Ottoman-Austrian-British army in Junyeh, and then they bombed Beirut and Saida. This bombing destroyed the walls of Beirut and in the aftermath, when Ottoman rule was restored, Beirut began its expansion. And while it was expanding, it ate the Jemmezi uh, uh, forest. And this is how the Jemmezi forest disappeared. And the name only uh, uh, continues to be used.
1: What I love is that I can just say Jemezi and I get a five-minute story of everything. <laughs> and that's exactly why I enjoy listening to you. I forgot to mention, you guys can order drinks and food after the episode ends, before the Q&A, so don't worry. There'll be time to order again. I get from storytellers in general, but maybe the way you describe Beirut's past and Lebanon's history, there's a theme of change and continuity. Continuity. Yeah, exactly. So that that in a way explains how the tree, the neighborhood, is still named after it, but it goes back in time. And I thought this episode we could talk about three specific eras— when Beirut was a hub, and we could go back in time to something that happened not too long ago, two weeks ago or so, or less than two weeks ago, the tremors that we felt in Beirut, the cities on the fault line, devastating earthquake in Turkey, Syria, it could have been us, and the truth is it was us, 551 AD, Roman Beirut was shattered. What I used to love doing on the tour is taking everyone I could to the Roman baths in downtown, I'm going to guess all of you have seen the Roman baths in downtown. I think it's still locked. You can't get there. So unfortunately, it's still the security corridor. But what always struck me was how layered Beirut's history is. And it's not that deep. Sometimes two meters, three meters deep, you find a Roman bathhouse. And if you dig deeper and deeper, you find Hellenistic, you find Roman, you find Phoenician ruins, all beneath Beirut. So let's go back in time. Before we get back to topography, which we'll get back to regarding Jamaisi, let's go back to that earthquake, 551 AD. Could you bring Roman Beirut to life as much as you can as a hub, not just for obviously this part of the world, but for the region?
2: Of course. You do know that history is made out of layers. It's the accumulation of layers. Accumulation not only of layers, but accumulation also of periods where the city was significant. Roman Beirut was a major urban center for three reasons. So, you know, Romans, uh, Roman rule started in the Levant in 64 BC. In a period of crisis that is slightly similar, we can uh, draw some parallel between what was happening in 64. There was a failing state. The Seleucid Empire was Falling apart, there was piracy, and there were even some brigands in Mount Lebanon, the Iturians, who were actually attacking the cities, the coastal cities, and threatening Roman trade and interests. So, what the Romans did, and none other than Pompey the Great, decided to not only end the situation of uh, a crisis and unrest, but also to conquer this end. After the initial Roman conquest, and with the end of the Roman civil war, the first official Roman emperor, what's his name? Augustus Caesar. You know, we don't say Caesar in Latin, we say Kaiser. Augustus Caesar decided to, one of the main pillars of his policy was what we call Pax Romana. What is Pax Romana? The Roman peace. Roman peace is a combination of a military, an urban, an economic, and a cultural strategy that would include and try to uh, uh, integrate the different ethnicities, religious groups within the uh, common Roman culture. This always starts by placing veterans of the Roman army in one of the conquered cities, so Beirut was chosen to place veterans of two Roman troops, two you know you know the famous proverb, all the roads? Actually, they did. Because if you dig like five meters deep here, you would find the Roman road that would go from Beirut all the way to Antioch, that Antioch that is now Gone. really, really, it, 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 the, the scale of destruction in Turkey is beyond imagination. So keep in mind that major historical cities were hit by this, uh, devastating recent earthquake. Then from Antioch to what is Istanbul, and from Istanbul you go to through the Via Ignatia, you cross the uh, sea and you take the Via Ignatia in Italy and you're in Rome. So yes, you would get to Rome. So the city was well connected to the Roman Empire with a very, for the period, very developed uh, 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 web of roads, Three, the port, always the port is very important in Beirut, became one of the main ports that would export the wheat of the Beka and of the Huran, Because the Roman Empire had a system of subsidized grain. The main grain warehouses of the Roman Empire were in Sicily, in Egypt, and in the Levant. So Beirut became an important one. And to add to that, there was a massive program of construction to make Beirut look like Rome. So how do we transform a city that is not Roman into a Roman city? You build temples like the ones in Baalbek, you build a forum, the forum is the main square, you build streets that would actually intersect at a uh, uh, um, 90 degree angle, one called the decumanus, Another called the Cardo, this will make communication easier, but this will also make the uh, uh, operation of the Roman troops easier because they won't have to go through Little Street to control a rebellious population. You would add the Roman bath. The Roman bath is not only a place where you take care of your hygiene. It's a place where you socialize and you exchange ideas. You know, this tradition survived in the Middle East. This is what we call the Turkish or the Ottoman bath. This is the descendant of the Roman bath. And what is important also in Beirut is that the Roman emperors decided to make their city one of the cities where they would proclaim the law. Because in the Roman Empire, the law was important. It was one of the first states who had and operated on a written set of laws, even if some of the emperors were crazy, but at least you had the concept of the rule of law. And this made gradually, in the 3rd century AD, Beirut a center where you would learn Roman law and where you would send your kids, if you are a member of the Roman elite, all around the Roman Mediterranean, to study law. So there was something that is similar to Beirut now. Can I ask you, Charles, is that the Roman law school in downtown? We have no idea where the Roman school was because Mm. actually it might not have been a separate building. Mm. Because... Roman courts were called basilica. This is where the Christians took the name and took the uh, architecture. So maybe the basilica itself was the Roman school. Mm -hmm. So we archaeologists have been looking for the actual building. It might have been the basilica. So we're not sure, but it is somewhere in downtown next to St. George. The reason I ask, I was
1: actually at the Garden of Forgiveness today. It should be there. So it should be in that vicinity next to Martyrs Square. Exactly. Let me interrupt, though, about the name Beirut. So, Roman Beirut,
2: known as... Had a very uh, significant name. So, how did Romans actually reflect the importance of Beirut? Well, they gave her a new name. So, Beirut became Beritus. But they added Colonia, because it is a colony. You have Roman veterans living in the city. Augusta. Augusta is a title. It means the honorable. Julia. She is the daughter of Augustus, and she is named after her great uncle, none other than Julius Caesar, Felix the Fortunate, the Blessed, Beritus. That was the name of the city under Roman rule. Hmm. And it also had, uh, uh, it was given a title, a motto, Beritus Nutrix Legum. I know Latin sounds heavy, but it's a very beautiful language. Beirut um shara'a. Beirut, the mother of laws. It is still the title, the official motto of the city. For a simple reason, at um, the beginning of the sixth century, um, there was um, a picture circulating on social media showing the files of the Lebanese state and their Horrible state. Oh. <laughs> so that was also the state that's, in the Roman from Empire. That's Beirut. <laughs> that, that's not from Roman Beirut. But in the beginning of the 6th century AD, there was a similar situation. So there were many varieties of law. And so Emperor Justinian, the Roman emperor, needed to actually uh, gather and produce one compendium of Roman law. So he asked for the best legislature and teachers to work on it. Some of them were from Beirut. The, the guys who did the bulk of the work were from Beirut. So to honor them and to honor the city, the emperor bestowed himself on the city the title of Beirut, Mother of Laws. So you can see how significant it is because this Roman law is the basis of legislative systems in most of uh, 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 the known world now. The, the word, the known world is a medieval... Uh, <laughs> but
1: Roman Beirut prior to the earthquake, in terms of size, would it roughly encompass what is downtown? According
2: right to what uh, uh, Lebanese archaeologists did a magnificent job and they had to do it in a very difficult circumstances in in the nineties and the and two thousands. Uh so probably the Roman city started somewhere in Jumezi hmm. and did where is now where the Abu Jmil and to Bashura. Okay. Uh how do you know that? Not only because of the archeological excavation, but Roman law stipulated that the necropolis, the cemetery should always be outside of the city. So if you study where Roman cemeteries are uh, in, in, in Beirut, you would find cemeteries in Ashrafieh. So Ashrafieh was already outside of the mm. city. Near Spinis, where Marmiter is. Marmiter is an interesting uh, 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 continuation of a use of a land, as a cemetery since Roman times. But this change in 551.
1: Because of the earthquake.
2: Because of an earthquake that was devastating. It is very similar to what happened now in Turkey and Syria. But this earthquake destroyed the city. Accounts, and it's very well documented by in historical accounts. Accounts speak of, um, well to go back to downtown and to the tour, Sadly, we can't now access this important part of the city because of the conjuncture (laughs) that we're living in. Uh, You know, there is an underground museum in downtown Beirut. It's one of the most beautiful and engaging museums in Lebanon. It's beneath the Orthodox Cathedral of Margerius. And they found there the layers, the layer that corresponds to 551. But in 551, there were three different, catastrophes that hit Beirut. Three, so they, they, they were one after another. First, the earthquake. We're speaking of an earthquake that destroyed the city and killed almost 30,000. Uh, back then, this is a very high number. Two, there was a tidal wave that also added to the destruction. And three, there was a major fire We can see archaeologists found the evidence for the earthquake destruction, for the tidal wave, and there's a layer of ash. This layer of ash sealed the first period when Beirut was a major metropolis. It would only become an important metropolis in the second half of the 19th century again. So let's actually, before we
1: jump to that next phase, which is actually... In a way, it's explaining exactly what change and continuity is. Exactly, An earthquake puts halt to what is a hub for the exactly. region. But I'm curious, Beirut's role at that time, does it stand out? In other words, is it competing with other Roman cities at the time? So it is not just a small Roman outlet. There is a significance to the city. It's a big Roman city. It's big not Roman small. city. It is yeah.
2: competing with the other major urban centers that yeah. are bigger. It's competing with Antakya, Antiochia. Hmm. It's competing with Alexandria. It's competing with Constantinople, Istanbul. It's competing with Rome. So these, the Roman Empire was was an empire of cities. It's an urban-based civilization, and Beirut was one of the of these cities, the flagship cities of uh, uh, the Roman Empire. So Hmm. the destruction actually uh, 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 ended this significant role of the city, and reduced it into a little town by the Mediterranean.
1: So its population shrinks. Exactly. A lot of the history is toppled. Exactly. And then excavated a lot of it the last three decades, post-Civil War downtown. There's a lot of history we're going to jump over only because we can't do this for 10 hours. Although there's a lot of stuff in the middle I'd like to learn about. But the hub, I'm assuming does not really resurface until the late Ottoman era. Exactly. Can we build up to that? So okay. when does Beirut in fact become once again something that it used to be during Roman times, an important city, not the largest one, but one that stands out in the Ottoman Empire?
2: Exactly. So what makes an important city to to actually produce an important city? First, you need peace. You need institutions, You need plans, you need capital, you need trade, you need education, you need (laughs) open-mindedness, and you need diversity. These factors actually were part of what made Beirut one of the most modern Ottoman cities. Even if traditional Lebanese historiography paints a very dark image of the Ottomans, we we need to actually try to understand that there is a different story. That in the second half of the 19th century, there's a shift in trade. Once again, the ports of the Levant become a hub for trade, mainly exporting the silk of Mount Lebanon, the tobacco of the Alawite Mountains, and the wheat of Syria, and the cotton of Syria to the new industrial and colonial powers. Add to that, an Ottoman active policy of modernization during a period called the Tanzimat. So the port was expanded even if this expansion happened through foreign capital, either French or Belgium. But this was under Ottoman legislation. So the city would benefit from this change of trade for the first time in centuries. Mm. Trade would move from the internal cities in the hinterland to the coastal cities. Also this, may, this was made easier because now you have the new steamships, you have the opening of the, canal, the Suez Canal, so Beirut would benefit from all of that. Ottomans heavily invested in building new neighborhoods or facilitating the emergence of new neighborhoods such as Atleblad. They even built an, an important uh, web of hospitals, schools, and big significant buildings that we still use till now. The Grand Serai, The Grand Serai was the Kishliti Hamayun. It was the main Ottoman military barracks of the city. And this actually building played an important role in shaping the visual architecture of the city because they would copy the architecture of this major building. Add to that that Beirut benefited a lot from It's a little bit harsh to say, but we have to say it. The 1860 civil war in Mount Lebanon and the massacres in Damascus pushed a lot of skilled labor towards Beirut. And this suddenly, Beirut was a small town, relatively small town, found itself with a growing population, and a growing population that is dynamic. Add to that, there there were already the institutions that would either allow this dynamic population to work or to get educated. Because local religious communities had established schools, Protestant missionaries had already established schools, and in 1866, will establish AUB. Later, the Jesuits will establish USG. Schools were opened everywhere, either missionary, local, or Ottoman. So you had an extremely educated labor force who would feed into this trade dynamic. And add to that, because you have schools, Mm. and you have, and this is very important, you have a democratization of knowledge. Printing houses made the price of book more affordable. And Beirut had many printing houses and it had many journals being printed. Press played a key role in disseminating knowledge in what is known as the Nahda, the Renaissance, the cultural Renaissance where you would for the first time start debating new ideas that would later on either give birth to new literary movement or to proto lebanese nationalism, proto-Arabic nationalism, proto-Syrian nationalism. We're speaking of proto because it is only after World War I that the break happened with the Ottomans and they started formulating their demands of independence clearly in nationalistic terms. But this mainly happened in the schools and universities of beirut so we have capital and in, uh, infrastructure for communication and ideas and education
1: i know i skipped over this but can you point at why beirut was fairly asleep for nearly 1200 years because it sounds like a lot of factors are lining up coincidentally in the late 1800s but yes. there's a long stretch of time where that doesn't happen Do you point to a certain reason?
2: The main reason is to actually have to follow the trade routes. The trade routes for most of what Europeans call the Middle Ages were not through the Mediterranean. There was a brief uh, period under Mamluk rule when these cities became once again very relevant and Beirut was not as important as, as it was under Roman time, but it was a dynamic port where Genoese had even a neighborhood for them mm. around what is now Jem'at de Bega in downtown. This was, Genoese would, would be there, mm. and they would, it was one of the trading hubs on the Silk and Spice Road. But in the early Ottoman period, it was Aleppo. That was the main emporium of the, Middle, emporium of the Middle East. Because you have to keep uh, 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 in mind that wealth was more concentrated in China, India, and the Middle East. And it was only in the late 17th century that the great divide will happen and capital would shift towards Western Europe. This is known as, in Arabic, Al-Ghala Al-Kabir, the price revolution. When the Ottoman Empire started losing its control on these trade routes and experiencing heavy inflation to an extent that sometimes they would ask for taxes to be paid in Dutch florin instead of local currency. Does it ring a bell?
1: You know, by the way, the difference between a podcaster and a lecturer, you know how to look at the audience. I'm looking at you, I forgot there's an audience. (laughs) (laughs) Should look both ways. (laughs) So, it's the late 1800s that the city begins to expand.
2: 1800s. Mid-1800s. Mid-1800s, yeah.
1: lining up with many things. Tanzimat is happening, yeah. the Sadafi has started. Beirut is growing physically. Exactly. Now, I'd like to, before we go into the future, which is the 20th century, I'd like to go back to Jemaisi. Okay. A lot of neighborhoods reflect what feels like a city that was more nature-friendly. So, I'll give you an example. I don't know if this is too cliche, but Hamra, referring to fresh, fertile topsoil, mm-hmm. which you don't see today in Hamra.
2: Of course.
1: Corniche and Mazra, I don't think there's one thing that would resemble that name today on that boulevard in that neighborhood. And you can go deeper in that. Many neighborhoods seem to reflect a smaller, more tranquil city, and that seems to be fairly new. But the expansion, could you bring that to life a bit? What What, what would it be like to live here watching Beirut grow rapidly.
2: Beautiful. yeah. Imagine a triangle. So Beirut is basically, if you, if, you, if you use Google Earth, Beirut is basically a triangle going into the Mediterranean. This triangle has four physical features that stand up if you would have had Google Earth in 1800 or some sort of a flying machine. You have two hills uh, that are mainly covered either by olive trees you do know that in Ashrafieh there's a part called caramel, zaytun, because you had zaytun yeah. there, or mulberry trees. Do you know why mulberry trees? What was the main force behind the local economy? So. Silk. And why is mulberry relevant to silk production? Because the silkworm has a very refined uh, palate, and it would only eat mulberry uh, 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 leaves. And then to the south, you had a little desert. There was a little desert in Beirut, al or Sahra al and a big pine forest. And the city was a little rectangle hmm. in a valley between all of these features. So when you went out of the city already, Sahat al Burj, Martyr Square, was out of the city. Oh, Martyr Square was outside. Was out of the city, where Virgin is now, hmm. where Jam'a al amin is this is the line of the walls of the cities. You can follow it from Anhar building up to Riyadh Al-Salah and down Shari' Al-Masarif. This is Beirut from the Mamluk period till 1840. And outside of this area, this is, you had rural uh, 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 agglomerations. Mazra'at al-Ashrafiyya, it was a Mazra'at al-Arab, Corniche. So you had actually agrarian activity taking part all around the city with the two Jemezi forests. So if you would go out of the city, you would actually be in a rural agrarian area already, if you're here in Ashrafir.
1: My, li- my limited knowledge of the rapid changes that take place around World War I, for me, it's a lot of violence and a lot of physical change and you correct me here if I'm wrong, even downtown is permanently erased. Sadly. Not the downtown we knew pre-Civil War, the downtown that was destroyed World War I. Of course. On occasion, I don't know if you guys do this, maybe it's because of you as well. I go on Google <laughs> and I look at Beirut old photos as far back as I can. It looks like a wonderful Mediterranean village that I would like to call home, but it's in buildings that are gone for good with the exception of the, the religious sites of downtown that are original. Now, you correct me here. Is this a World War I plan that's accelerated by the French? It's a Turkish idea, that, an Ottoman idea, sorry, that really takes off in the 1920s, and then our history is completely erased.
2: What's sad about Beirut is the historical nucleus doesn't exist anymore. What do we mean by historical nucleus? So this agglomeration, this rectangle, this historical rectangle, is, was the area that was continuously inhabited since, well, Beirut is a very old city. We have proof of a town in the Bronze Age, 3,000 years before Christ. And probably even there was a village before. But the continuous urban occupation is something that is very important in all the major cities in the Middle East. I know in the Middle East, Ariha and Biblos fight who is older. Every city in the Middle East can claim to be the descendant of a village from the Neolithic period 12,000 years ago. So this historical, to give you a sense of what it would have felt like. First, it would have been white. One of the major crimes that happen in Lebanon is that we take off the white coating from the walls of coastal cities. Coastal cities in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, are built with a very fragile stone, Hajar al Ramleh. To protect this stone and to make it last, local and traditional vernacular architecture created what we call the Kalim. It not only protected the walls, but it also made these houses easier to light, because you don't have electricity, so you need white walls, to actually also to become cooler in summer and easier to warm up in winter. When we take off this coating, we are actually killing the building. Batroun, Jbel, cities that are not white anymore are cities that are threatened. And we have this false narrative that, Ya Allah, this is how it looked like. No! It is, it, all you have to do is look at the old pictures. They are white unless you are building with solid limestone, like in Mount Lebanon or Junye, where you don't have Hajar Ramli. So the city would have been white, and the it would have looked, a lot like old Saida or old Tripoli, because Lebanon only has three cities who still have the historical nucleus, Sur, Saida, and Tripoli. Batroun is a relatively recent city. Jbeil, well, the historical nucleus was completely reshuffled in the 60s. So this city was preserved while Beirut was expanding. Mm-hmm. Starting 1840, it expanded following the main axis of communication. It extended around Tariq Saida, where you would have أقل بلغ. It extended around طريق الشيم ras راس النبع And it extended around درب النهر درب طرابلس تر- became جميزي
1: He points at me whenever he says Trablus, by the way. <laughs> I've noticed this. I've, you know my apartment.
2: <laughs> always, it's always Troubles. You should be proud.
1: You know what I'm proud. You should
2: be proud. I should be proud. You're it's, from
1: you're from Tripoli. It's
2: one of my favourite cities. It's one go. of the only cities that you have a continue it it's in, in Tripoli history is alive. They don't fake it. In Beirut we fake it. <laughs> they don't fake it and they don't make it exotic. I mean Ushe is something that you have been eating for thousands of years. Get a grip of yourself. <laughs> I'll own it you should point at me every time <laughs> so so by the 1800s you had a modern city and one of the iconic buildings of this modern city is this traditional house what we consider a traditional house it's beautiful it's magnificent but it's a modern house it's a house made possible by, by modernity so you had this white streets new neighborhoods big uh, uh, public Ottoman spaces surrounding this nucleus. And this nucleus became the poorer part of the city where you had trouble. So one of the ways to deal with uh, uh, um, these poor neighborhoods was to adopt uh, uh, an urban policy inspired by Hossman and Napoleon III. What do we do with the old nucleus? We destroy it and instead of the old souks that are better adapted to local climate, you replace it by straight streets, big streets. The plan was Ottoman and in 1916, they started destroying this uh, uh, central part of Beirut and relocating the poor population. In but the middle of World War One. In the middle of World War One, you see the pictures of uh, what we call Shera al Marad now, the mm. main street in downtown. It's Rue um, Picot. Uh, no, uh, uh, I, I uh, yeah. never uh, uh, have them clearly in my mind. It's the
1: one that goes horizontally. Horizontally. Or? I think it's the, George Picot. No.
2: And and no. you have the dis- the the scale of destruction is. Uh, is outstanding. And in 1918, Ottoman defeat, end of World War I, the project stops. So the French inherit a city with a destroyed center. What to do? They took the same plan and upgraded it, and uh, 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 actually commissioned a local Ottoman era architect, who's from Lebanon, Yusuf Aftimos, to devise a new style. A style that would echo at the same time vernacular and local modern architecture in Beirut and Mount Lebanon. Older Islamic patterns, Ottoman architecture, and French architecture, and this is how downtown was born. It was born as a a reflection of a French policy of modernization, of making Beirut into the Paris of the Middle East, and actually, Copying an iconic feature of Parisian urbanization, the Place de l'Etoile. But if you look closer at our Place de l'Etoile, it is not a complete Etoile. Do you know why?
1: Can I guess? Yes. It's St. George's in the way. Exactly. Six out of eight streets... Would knock down two churches, two churches, the Greek Catholic and Roman
2: Marlies and Margerius. So one of the decisions that were taken by the Mandate authorities while reconstructing uh, central Beirut is to keep the original or the older religious building, the churches and the mosques, and this is why the only surviving bits and pieces of this older Beirut are the religious spaces that are completely. Uh, 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 like you, you, these these were integrated within the urban fabric they would never have very uh, uh, monumental facades because the, I, the monumental facade was within a courtyard they had courtyards where you would actually go transition from the public space to the religious space so now we see these monuments without their natural urban environment but decision was taken and this is how they were preserved.
1: So let's say there's a, almost an echo from the earthquake. That Beirut is finding itself in an uncertain time. It's not 551. It's World War I. And the city is changing. Of course. Parts of it are being destroyed. Not necessarily by violence, but by urban planning. No, by um, urban planning. Urban planning. Many people die from famine.
2: Oh, a lot.
1: Refugees right. flee this part of the world. The population shrinks. But the way you're describing it it sounds like the city is quickly reborn yes but quickly reborn perhaps and i'll interrupt with an identity crisis that not did not necessarily match recent history right before that so in other words i'm going to ask it this way and i promise i won't do too much identity tonight i promise what it would have been like to live here and how you'd refer to yourself in 1914 versus 1918. I'm assuming a lot of changes happening.
2: 1920, let's say. But 1920. So, yes. is
1: it fair to say that unlike the earthquake, the city is patched up and rebuilt quickly, but locals are facing a very new story?
2: Yes. We sometimes uh, tend to forget local agency in the making of modern Lebanon. We try to find sense in making modern Lebanon in nationalism, in ethnic composition. Well, if if we read and we look closer at the historical records, we have a more interesting story. We have a story of people surviving horrible tragedies in World War One, and presenting new ideas of modernity and creating institutions and trying to find new ways to manage this diversity. So this is to get uh, a shortcut through the identity, but that was well done, Charles. I've never <laughs> two, seen you do <laughs> that in two minutes or less. <laughs> so keep in mind that in, 18, in 1914, at the, before the uh, uh, outbreak of World War I, uh, the question of how would you identify, well, we can answer it in many ways. Administratively, what is now present-day Lebanon was divided between three Ottoman administrative entities. Beirut was at the head of a big wilaya, from Ladiyye to Haifa, controlling most of the coast of the Levant. In Mount Lebanon, you had the semi-autonomous uh, mutasarrifia, the province of Mount Lebanon, a very important experiment with modernity that also we undermined and we don't take seriously in history because we are busy uh, uh, debating about ethnicity and, and, and uh, you know who. And then Vilayet Isham, or Vilayet Damascus, or Vilayet Suriya, it had many names, which would, inc- inc- uh, uh, the Bekaa would be now part of this. In 1918, if I'm gonna keep, you would be what the Allies called occupied enemy territories administration. You had no civic identity. In 1920, you had a new political framework. Uh, greater Lebanon and the different states in Syria. I have to make something clear. Lebanon was never part of Syria. This is very important to keep in mind because there was no Syria. Syria or bilad al-Sham is a geographical notion. It's not a political notion. It was never even an administrative entity because sometimes We mix these things. So yes, of course, Lebanon was part of Bilal al-Sham, and Syria is part of Bilal al-Sham. But Bilal al-Sham is not a country. It's not an administrative unit. It's a geographical notion, or it had some sort of a cultural shared identity, but it doesn't make that a country. So in 1920, there was a Lebanon before the state of Syria, because if you look at the maps, the French after destroying the short-lived Syrian kingdom of Amir Faisal, they divided this area into dawlat Al-Alawiyye, Halab, state of Halab, state of the Alawites, state of Damascus, and state of the Druze. And it is only in 1936 that there will be a unified Syria. So just to, to make things. In Lebanon, of course, there was a big debate because if we look on the formation of a new country, you would always have people who would actually accept and people who would voice different ideas. To understand this, uh, uh, um, let's say, conflict, political conflict, we need to understand what were the political ideas and projects circulating before World War I, during World War I, and in the crucial two years that made the modern Middle East, 1918, 1920, where the Allies were still debating what to do. So you mainly had some voices were calling for a larger Arab unity. When I say voices, these are not clear political programs. They are rather vague, because you have to keep in mind, up until 1918, Most of the inhabitants of the Arab-speaking provinces of the Ottoman Empire considered themselves as Ottomans. There were few elements that were against the Ottomans because the Ottomans were seen as the legitimate Muslim empire. This is a very important key factor in building legitimacy. So you had... Some sort of a vague program, what we call the Hashemit uh, uh, project, making of an Arab kingdom ruled by the Hashemites, the descendant of the Prophet, who were, who were already the autonomous ruler of the Ottoman province of the Hijaz, can get more complicated. The original plan was from for a large kingdom from the Taurus Mountain till Yemen, and then it was recentered around. Bilad al Sham or Iraq. Then you had another political idea, Suri al Kubra, making the area, uh, uh, nothing to do with the Hizb al Aumi it's a different project, <laughs> it's, it's an older project, uh, making some sort of, and local. Uh, 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 intellectuals. This is very important. We're talking about intellectuals voicing political idea. There were few politicians actually voicing their idea, which is healthier, I think. So intellectuals presenting ideas. You had intellectuals from Mount Lebanon, from Beirut, voicing for making out of the Mutasarrifia a bigger entity. The Mutasarrifia is very important because the Mutasarrifia actually gave the Local inhabitants of Mount Lebanon and experience in self-rule. Only the mutasarrif was Ottoman. The administrative uh, uh, um, Entity. entity was local, was Lebanese. They had some sort of
3: engagement with
2: democracy because they used to elect. They're representative, even if the election was only male election and women didn't have any... So let
1: me pause point. it there, Sharal. Let's say the country physically is growing. I yeah. mean, greater Lebanon is an expansion of the Mutassarifi. Beirut is growing too at the same time. The 1920s and 1930s, Beirut is changing rapidly. That kind of shift and that kind of, if you will, Lebanese identity that's emerging... Can you find tentacles to today that begin there? So in other words. Yes. Yeah, I, and I know it's an odd way of asking it, but the birth pangs of modern Lebanon are still hanging. Of course. So anything you can add to that in terms of the city, how we, how we relate to Beirut, and how Beirut is changing perhaps against its will.
2: So keep in mind that in 1920, when there is a new state of greater Lebanon, you, are, you have all of these ideas in one place. And, of course, they would uh, uh, actually uh, try to live some sort of a, it wasn't really a bloody conflict between these ideas, but there was a, in historical sources, in the discourse, either an acceptance of the new state or a refusal. And in Beirut, Beirut found itself as the capital of this new country, Mm. controlling a smaller entity than it previously controlled when it was the capital of an Ottoman vilayet. And when we see Beirutis voicing their disapproval of being attached to Mount Lebanon, sometimes now we explain it in sectarian terms, but let's go and look at the map. They controlled an area three times bigger than than Lebanon. they might be concerned that their influence is now reduced, and these conflict about what is Lebanon, how to rule Lebanon, how to manage the diversity, are still unanswered questions.
1: I'll leave that to the last bit of the recording. But
2: I have to add something about Beirut of course, because sure, you asked. Yes, me. but Beirut now, if you want to compare it with this historical Beirut that has been for almost two centuries a Beirut of ideas. Hmm. of diversity, of intense intellectual and artistic uh, uh, life is no more.
1: Let's talk about a window that we spoke about prior to this, which is we were thinking together the hub, if you will. There was Roman Beirut, Mm -hmm. late Ottoman Beirut, and you surprised me because you referred to a decade that I think is critical to understanding where we are now. Maybe even two decades 1950s until
2: the 70s yeah maybe until
1: 1970 itself and I like that you wanted to go there Um, that regional hub that cosmopolitan city that we all think about often and I think what you're referring to is really the intelligentsia of the region flocking do you need more water I think that's 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 true yeah that's yours actually could I have another diet Pepsi Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Where regional poets, writers, journalists, artists, what have you, they're coming here. The banking sector for the region is here. Of course. Um, Becomes a tourism destination for the region as well. And a fairly, fairly safer part of the region. And free. And free, is that what you said? Yes. What do you mean by free?
2: Well, you have to keep in mind what made Beirut this major hub of Arab modernity, regardless of if we are Arabs or not, because I don't want to get into that, because there is something bigger than one angle identity. You're you're missing
1: out on Twitter.
2: (laughs) You should see what I get when I post these episodes. Whether you want to identify as Arab or as Hittite, who cares? You are free to identify however you want. There was something bigger than that in Beirut. Beirut has always been a place where diversity found not only the institutions to be expressed, but also to produce something new. So building on what already existed in the late Ottoman period and on the French mandate, Beirut was a fairly modern city. So the conjuncture of events, you have the transformation of regimes in Egypt, Iraq, Syria into author, I can't pronounce
1: authoritarian it.
2: Exactly, regimes where you don't have freedom of trade, you don't have, you have more socialist uh, inspired by the Soviet Union um, uh, kind of economy. So this is actually bringing the trade in the area to a halt. And then you have the circumstances of the Arab-Israeli conflict also. And you have fleeing of capital, Egyptian, Palestinian, Syrian, Iraqi, to Beirut. Not only because Beirut was a safe place, because even if there is a big controversy now on the banking system, but we have the oldest the oldest modern banking system in the Middle East. And we have to keep that in mind, that these banks made this capital transfer possible. Add to that that already you had the best universities, the best schools, the best hospitals. That might sound cliche, but it was like that. You had them here. Add to that, that because of these new regimes in these countries, freedom of speech, freedom of press was no more guaranteed. In Lebanon, it was guaranteed, with limits, of course. But it was guaranteed. This transformed Beirut in the 50s and 60s into a hub of trade a global and a regional and global financial hub, a hub for education, a very important hub of education. You know, you have this classical image of the cafes of Hamra. Now, sadly, whenever someone does a documentary or speaks about cafe, they reduce it to an old guy wearing a tarboos, people drinking, uh, having shisha, killing themselves and giving themselves cancer for free sorry for this person <laughs>
1: and very playing pers-
2: back up I and mean, well there was something else first these coffee shops were modern and these were coffee houses where you were debating not only new ideas but you were actually sometimes uh, planning coups in Arab states so this image is reductive of what Beirut was and sometimes Documentaries and media can be misleading on what was this city of Beirut. You would walk Hamra and you would find, you would identify coffee houses by political affiliation, either for uh, leftists or communists or right-wing or, or pro-Palestinian or what, you had everyone. Also, you had the intense artistic production. The Rahbani are part of this uh, artistic uh, production. We should not undermine this modern element of our history. So this made Beirut a, pos- a city for a possible modern Arab world. A city where you could also enjoy all sorts of freedom. Personal freedoms, press freedom, intellectual freedom. This is key. When you cannot say what you want, when you cannot publish what you want, you are killing, actually, the core of human progress, ideas.
1: I usually ask this question for the more politics-minded guest. So I'm going to ask it to you in the more historical narrative perspective, the best way you see it. That's a very narrow sliver of time. Yes, We're not old enough to know what that's like. Perhaps some in the audience were old enough to remember those years. (laughs) I didn't... (laughs) You pointed at yourself. (laughs) My vision is not so good, so I wouldn't know. Let's say the majority of the audience, or the majority perhaps of your audience, maybe even my audience, isn't old enough to know those glory years. Maybe that's a loaded way of describing it, but there's something glorious about it. It's a very short period of time.
2: State building.
1: State building. So was that, I'll I'll let you speak here, but is is that what you would point to as why it worked? And the way you're describing it is rosy, but real. It's not romantic.
2: You have to keep in mind that it wasn't rosy for everyone. Uh, Sometimes we are very harsh in judging Lebanon. We depict Lebanon in the 60s and the 70s as this monster that is actually made there to destroy everyone living outside of Beirut. El. Give it a break. It's a country that only experienced less than 20 years of stability. And what it did in 20 years of stability is amazing. State building takes centuries. We only had 20 years of Relative freedom, add to that the 50 years of the mutasarrifia, called by the great Turkish historian Engin Akali, the long peace. So we didn't have a long peace in the 20th century. We had a short peace, and during the short peace, there was the only attempt of serious state building with all its flaws. It was the Shehabi regime, the Shahabi, the 12 years, the 6 years of Fahd and the 6 years of Shah al You had a proper state building. And this state building had it, this is, imagine this is, we're we're crossing the lines of history into the what ifs, if we had more peace, it might have been possible to integrate all the tensions and find a way to construct a Lebanese shared identity, because we were going there. And this idea of the Rahbanis and music, Building a shared identity. Of course, how do you build a shared identity without art? This is important. How do you build a shared identity without roads, without institutions, without public schools? I have to say, public schools in Lebanon have been shut down for a month and a half. This Lebanon is being assassinated. What made Lebanon are schools and universities and dynamic labor, new dynamic ideas, modern ideas, and people who studied. This country is being assassinated from its soul. They are killing the soul of Lebanon. So in Beirut, you had all of these. Of course, there was inequality. Of course, you had the major problem of Palestinian refugees and how the Lebanese failed into integrating them. You had also the problem of Palestinian armed forces who were there illegally, uh, legally and illegally, active on, on Lebanese soil. So it wasn't rosy. But there was something that was being built.
1: What you're describing is exactly what changes in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Everything you're describing crumbles. Yes. Now this is maybe something that a historian could offer some perspective, although it perhaps is a bit too soon.
2: Too soon.
1: When you refer to state building, and I like that—that's what you honed in on. Two decades of a state that's trying for Ezhheb is maybe the pillar of that era, but it's not just him. You described the cafes and the bustling of the 1950s and 60s, and I like that. The only times that I felt something like that, and this is the way I see it, we can talk about this later in the Q&A, is the attempts at state building since the end of the Civil War. And in my mind, there's two moments. It's 2005, and it's 2019. And that's when the cafes were bustling. That's when politics was being discussed the way I would imagine it in the 1950s and 60s. I see that as attempts at state building. Would you share that sentiment?
2: I do. I do. State building, uh, not only state building, but the idea of voicing new projects is key to state building. You cannot state build without ideas. And these ideas, we were very vocal about these ideas in 2005 and 2019, 2020. And killing the spaces of public exposure of these ideas is key to controlling and to shutting down this, proje- this possible uh, uh, project for a new Lebanon. So I do share this idea with you, of course.
1: I'm gonna ask it in a personal way. I got to know you post October 17. My podcast really took off as a result of October 17. I actually had a co-host living in Martyrs Square for two months, recording daily episodes as the protests were, were happening. And I think both of us, in different ways, are a byproduct of that time. Indeed. Now, are you, in a personal way, trying to maybe honor those previous attempts? Are you trying to make us remember what we did right? Is there a goal in mind? Because you are one hell of a storyteller, but you're also persuasive. And I can reimagine, I can imagine a lot of audiences on your Instagram, but also just by listening, they rethink their prejudice, and maybe they rethink Lebanon. Is that a goal you have in mind, or is that unintended? You just want to give a good story through history.
2: Actually, it is one of the goals of Heritage and Roots. I'm originally a teacher. I've taught for 21 years. And actually, it's what happened in 2019 that pushed me away from teaching in institutions uh, because it's very challenging and it's very difficult. And I found new ways of uh, um, putting, uh, uh, trying to build a healthy relation with our history. We don't have a healthy relation with our history. We still treat history as a holy entity in Lebanon. It's holy. And whenever we question history, we are sometimes attacked as heretics, which mm. is normal, but mm. history is all about change and continuity. History is all about freeing yourself from history. One of the reasons we have this unhealthy relation with history is that we can't look it in the eyes. We can't accept that this history is over. We want to live the pre- in the present and imagined past, And this is where you have all this, I understand, very important discourse about identities. The identities are, by definition, ever-changing. So what I'm trying to do is offer an easy access to historical sources, experiences, and to actually rebuild a possible relation with this idea of Lebanon. You introduced me as a Lebanese nationalist. I'm a patriot.
1: No, I meant it in just. Yeah, yeah, I know.
2: Sometimes people misunderstand that when deconstructing history, it doesn't mean that you using the very simple logic of good and bad, that you hate your country. I'm profoundly attached to Lebanon. And what I'm trying to do is invite the Lebanese to understand that what they have in common is way more important than what divides them. And I'm trying to find the commonality outside of religious and sectarian affiliation. We have always been a diverse uh, 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 part of the world. One of the key pillars of our identity is diversity. And we were even more diverse before because we had like in the 50s, the Jewish community, even before we had other ethnic groups. So diversity is key to understanding the Middle East and Lebanon. And I find it really sad that there are voices calling for this monoculture, mono-identity. It's boring. It's boring coming from a region that experienced diversity with all the flaws of the systems of managing diversity. This is an area where diversity was more present than the West, for example. Not anymore, of course. So the idea is go back to discover this healthy, uh, liberated relation with your history. Have fun while engaging. History is fun. It can be fun and learn that there was a possible Lebanon and we still have the agency. And even though this, this is a little country in terms of population, in terms of economy, in terms of geography, this population had tremendous agency in building a state in a very unstable and difficult region. We have horrible neighbors and we actually build a country in a horrible neighborhood. So we have to keep that in mind and stop shooting ourselves in our legs. I'm translating from Arabic. That was close. I know. <laughs> There were too many people shooting your leg at once. <laughs> so so <laughs> this is, this. the goal of Heritage and Roots is to offer Lebanese a highway, a simplified highway, where they can go, look at the sources, because what I share is the work of big historians. It happens to be that I'm a teacher and I know how to deliver the message. I'm delivering the messages of major historians in Lebanon, who called for us to be liberated from our history, and not to use history as one of the factors of conflict. I'm also adding a new layer, cultural heritage. We know nothing about our country. We know nothing. We could argue for hours and hours about identity, and if you ask a simple question, what is Emberis? What is amberis?
1: You know what? Wait, let's save that. Because hold on, hold on. So there's three things. Before we get to the break, there will be a Q&A after. Uh, three things. First, there's going to be a pop quiz. That's one of the questions. And I think whoever answers them right gets to take Charles home with them. Is that the de- Was that right? For one day. And then you bring him back here. The second thing, um, I'd like to plug... If I may, two guests that have been on the podcast recently. Way in the back is Muhammad Tame. I don't know if he's still here. If he could stand up. I have no idea if he's still here. Way in the back. There he is. Yes. He has an amazing, amazing page. That man has by far the most delightful Instagram page, photo collection, called Lebanon Then Lebanon now. now. Follow him. A lot of what we talked about is actually visually illustrated by him. He was on my podcast as well. I can't really see him. I think he's there, right? Lebanon
2: then and now.
1: Lebanon then now. Without Then now. Then so. now. I hope that's right. That sounds right. Um, allow me to end the episode before the Q&A by, by saying something. Uh, in 2005, I think, yeah, in June 2005, I was sitting in a cafe. Uh, Chase in Sessin. Chase is gone. I don't yeah. know if anyone remembers Chase in Sessin. It was supposed to be one of those pseudo-intellectual hubs of the 2000s. I was reading a story about Beirut. I was actually reading a story about Khalil Hevi, a poet who commits suicide during the Israeli invasion, 1982. But he's an AUB professor, a poet, and a complicated man. His politics evolves over time. I think he starts off as a Syrian socialist nationalist member ends up being a he on the way becomes a lebanese nationalist becomes a fatah supporter and then he commits suicide on his balcony in june 1982. i think it was june 1982. i'm reading this story in sessin and moments later there's a car bombing not that far away that took samir asir's life so i threw that book and ran like everyone did and mind you there's no facebook instagram twitter you just run I got into a service. I used to live in Ras Beirut. Maybe 30 minutes later on TV, you realize it's Samir Asir. The tour that I used to give was a tribute to him. In my mind, Lebanon's best storyteller, who paid the ultimate price. But he was a complicated man as well. An Arab nationalist, but friendly enough with Lebanese nationalists who worked in An-Nahar, wrote in French, spoke Arabic and English, could easily thrive in De Prague, in Hamra, or at the Chase in Saisin, it didn't matter. And I liked that. I think, if I'm not mistaken, a Syrian father, a Palestinian, Palestinian mother, mother, with a French passport, Indeed. who chose to live in Lebanon. That, to me, is the quintessential story.
2: Exactly. He reflects what Lebanon is. Yes. This diversity that is at our core. Yeah. And I- that we are denying.
1: And for years and years, I ended the tour at his statue in downtown. I started the podcast with another storyteller, very different than Samir Asir, Ziad Dwairi. First episode about Hamra, West Beirut, the insult, a complicated man who's rethinking his politics, who's fed up with Lebanon and leaves for good reason. And now he's in Paris. I entered his studio, did the first episode there. And that's largely how the podcast started, talking to Ziad Dwayri in Paris about Beirut. Four years later, I'm sitting with my favorite storyteller today, and that's you. So, Charlotte, it's an honor to have you as the first guest in this live episode. The Q&A will come. Order your drinks and food. We have a 10-minute break.
2: But just before that, in terms of what you can read to know a lot about Beirut, start with Samir Asir's magnificent book, L'histoire de Beirut, the history of Beirut. There is also another magnificent book by Professor Leila Fawaz about traders and merchants in Beirut. There is, this, these books are amazing and they would actually lead you to understand more about the complexity that is behind history. Because some voices calling for an uh, 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 identity, a certain identity, are reductive. Lebanon is a complex country in terms of identity. So keep that in mind. Read their books, and we'll get back to you in ten minutes with stay sh- for the Q and
1: A. Don't go Q&A, anywhere. Yeah? Thank you. Okay.
2: Thank you.
4: Madam.
1: Yeah, it's just Thank 10 you. It's just 10 minutes. i have to do a little
0: bit of With pleasure.
2: Let's see.
1: <laughs> so, Charles has a nice name for the pop quiz. What is it called?
2: <laughs> you want me? Let's make you feel ignorant. <laughs> Let's make you feel ignorant.
1: So, guys, just a moment before the pop quiz begins. Um, I want to emphasize there's another guest here. I, I hope he's still here. Nadeem Shadi. He just left.
2: He's here. He's right there.
1: <laughs> he's here. <laughs> he's hiding. Ne- So by way of merging uh, alternative media with mainstream media, Nadim was my first guest on the MTV podcast. The episode came out last night. For me, that episode stands out. I've had maybe six episodes with Nadim on the Beirut Banyans, the first for MTV. What we talked about at length is the period of time we just talked about, the 1950s and 1960s. So check that episode out. MTV, LBC, (laughs) Saturday nights?
2: Saturday nights, Lebanon of short stories about cultural heritage. Nothing historical.
1: (laughs) So Saturday nights on LBC.
2: And a rerun, I don't know. Neither do I.
1: (laughs) MTV (laughs) is Tuesday evenings on YouTube, I think 7.30. Saturday,
2: 10.30. Saturday, 10.30. Sometimes it's aired at 10. I don't know why. Okay. (laughs)
1: Well, the good news is... It's on
2: Saturday. It's
1: on Saturday. I hope we're not selling out.
2: No, we're not. We're not? (laughs) Good.
1: Saturday will be on Netflix soon, and we're done. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with a pop quiz. Charles, you have the floor, and I'll give you the questions if you'd like. We wrote them down earlier. I think the first one was already hinted at.
2: So the idea is not to make you feel... uh, 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 uh. The Nintendo idea is channel. just to, to see how much we are ignorant about our cultural heritage and history. So uh, this is uh, the nicest way I can put it. <laughs> so, what is Embaris? And the microphones guys, are sure. around, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to, what is Embaris? We have an answer. Oh, thank you,
3: thank you. Uh, Noam de Exactly. Applause. Thank you. Can I ask you a question? Uh, we have no uh, idea
2: because sometimes sometimes these uh, finding etymologies and names of food can be very tricky. We really have no idea. It doesn't sound Arabic. It might be Arabic. It might be Turkish. It might be Ottoman. It might be Turkmen. Th- this kind of Lebne, like the Serdeli, is usually linked to nomadic groups. So it might be Turkish. We don't know. Probably not. We, we really have no etymological. There is a family name. Amberis, But th- are they the inventors of this Lebni? We don't know.
3: May I ask you one more question? When we say uh, Lebnani, is it related to this term? Not at all. Thank Not you, sir. Thank you very Not much.
2: Not at all. Uh, so Ambaris is, and Serdeli are two different kinds of Lebni. So Lebni is more diverse than you think it is. Uh, why is Baalbak So uh, is Baalbak an Allah? A castle or a temple? It's a temple and a castle and an archaeological site. Why is it significant? Why is it important?
5: I'm also coming to the question. that a وهو اسمه بعل، كانوا يعبدوه بمديرة الهليوبلس اللي هي مديرة الشمس اللي بعدين اجوا الرومان عليها وهو التمبل اللي هو مثل ما كمان حضرتك قلت انه كانوا يلعبوا الورع الرومان كانوا يلعبوها من بوقتها سو so, هن لشو هالقد إذا نحنا وقفنا حد العمود من عواميد من بيان كثير صغار <laughs>
2: it's exactly, bravo. It's, but not uh, 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 the, Baal Baal is a Semitic title. It's the title of the main male god, not only in the Phoenician Pantheon, but also in the Aramean, in the, in the Middle East. So Baal's real name is Hadad or Haddu. Uh, Baal is the god of storms, he's the god of fertility, and he is the god behind the concept of male fertility. And Baalbek was one of the major center of Romanization. Uh, the relevance of Baalbek is that it is not only one of the biggest complex, complex of Roman temples in the Roman Empire, it's, architecturally speaking, it's not really uh, 100% Roman. This is Roman architecture that integrates local elements of older religious architecture. So, this is why it's very important. It's a temple and an al'a because in the Ayyubid and Mamluk and Ottoman period, Ba'al, this part of the city was fortified and it had a neighborhood in it. It's the German archaeologist who came in the late 19th century who destroyed the neighborhood. Of Baalbaq, the hay that was in the archaeological site, and made Balbak what it is now. So, question number three: Who is is Amir Bashir Abu Tain? al Amir Bashir Abu Tain. He's not the Amir Bashir that we know. Abu Was
4: that was that an answer? What
2: what?
1: Did Eli mumble something? What? what Eli? It's a Amir Bashir, but from Express.
2: Well, actually, that's a very intelligent way for putting it. He's the last Emir of Mount Lebanon. Charles, can I interrupt yeah. you? Yeah. Is Is Eli your student in Eli Antutra? Eli is a dear friend of mine. <laughs> He's, Does, he's, he's a dear friend, and it happens that he had to suffer me <laughs> while I was teaching at 19. He, he, is, he and another Eli here are dear friends of mine. They were part of the first promotion I ever taught. I was 19, they were 14, and I was teaching. And he
1: remembers AliExpress from the class.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, AliExpress didn't exist Sorry. back then, because we, we're talking about 2003. Wow. In the prehistoric times. So. Uh, like Eli said, his Emir Bashir Abu is a cousin of Al-Amir Bashir al al-Kabir who was uh, exiled in 1840 and 1841. Briefly, the Ottomans appointed a weak cousin of his as Prince of Mount Lebanon. The locals didn't respect him a lot. And when you call someone Abu Hain, in the, the dialect of the mountain, it means that he's someone who's stupid. And he, uh, a famous uh, local historian Rase told that Shukalal Amir Bashir, Keshesh and Al why? Amir Bashir, Amir Bashir Abu Tain hobby was Kash <laughs> al yani imagine that he built on the roof of al Din. Uh, 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 Kash Hamim, and Shashma at because he he had some sort of a problem and had to go to... So he wasn't respected at all and he was the last Emir of Mount Lebanon. And his story, there's a lot of funny stories uh, around him. So, another question, more serious. Why is 1926 very important and relevant to modern Lebanese history? 1926. Applause. Can you say it again, please? This is the year when the constitution was drafted. Mm. It's a very important landmark in the state building of Lebanon. The Lebanese constitution was drafted in 1926, and it made Greater Lebanon the first ever republic in the Arab world. So in 1926, after the adoption of the constitution, Greater Lebanon was replaced by a new state, the Republic of Lebanon. And last, what's the etymology of Beirut? Because we know it, that's why I'm asking (laughs) you. Why? Exactly, it's beer. Why, there's a reason. Beirut means in Semitic, in Ken'ane, in Fini'e, in whatever Semitic language, all Semitic languages are cousins, are related. Biruta or Beirut is the plural of beer. The reason is simple. To have a city, you need water. But the actual historical nucleus of the city is far away from the river. You know what's the ancient name of uh, Nahar Beirut? Magoras the Greek version that comes from a Phoenician version, kar, cold water. It's very far from the city and it's only under Roman rule when a gigantic aqueduct on Otteres Bayde took the water and brought it into the city. But before that, the inhabitants of Beirut had to dug wells to be able to drink. And this made their city the city of Wells. In Jemayzeh, the blue house, the dagger house, still has the well that fed the uh, uh, neighborhood. So Beirut is the city of wells.
1: So with permission, I'll start the Q&A with a question about language. I've seen you do this, uh, of language, of, of etymology. I've seen you do this in a variety of outlets where you captivate an audience by showing us or telling us a name and how it links to our past. Do you find that as the most effective way of discussing history?
2: It's one of the highways to history because you can link yourself to something that has relevance in your presence. One of the best methods to go and discover history is to make it relevant to your present. And to understand that when you eat sugar or spices, you have in your hands the Abbasid agricultural revolution, the silk uh, the the Spice Road, you have history. When you drink coffee, you have the story of this coffee coming from Ethiopia to the Sufis of Yemen, to Damascus and Beirut, to Istanbul, to Vienna, to America. So engaging through, its the concept is the little stories behind the big events. Right. Sometimes we tend to go to the big events, and this is where we fight.
1: But I find these little stories or little examples the most enchanting. Of course. And what was the name again? Magoro? The name... Magoras was the name
2: of the river because under Hellenistic and Roman rule, everything was renamed to sound either Greek like Adon, who is one of the titles of a Phoenician god. Adon means the Lord. became Adonis. Mm. Uh, uh, And Magoras, Maikar, became Magoras.
1: Let's open it up, Q&A. And by the way, you can ask anything you'd like. But if you want to be, if you want to ask a question, it's going in the podcast. So your voice will be included, not your face, just your voice. There's somebody in the middle.
2: I would like water, please, some water.
1: Water for the Maguras. Please please go ahead. Thank you, sir. I
3: recall when I was a child, I read a book.
1: Could you stand maybe when you ask so we could, yeah, thanks.
3: I read um, a book called She Bria, La Salam al-Rasi.
2: Exactly.
3: And I, this was imprinted in my mind, I was a child, about why Jamezi was called Jamezi. Somewhere along the line, there was a man who was trying to protect a Jamezi tree from Ottoman, um, perhaps military personnel, who were apparently instructed to cut them down tree by tree for some reason essentially reducing a great forest into a handful of remaining trees. Uh, how true is that? And was there really a purpose or reason behind taking down these trees in particular? Thank you.
2: Thank you for mentioning Rasi because Rasi is one of these
3: important popular historians who gathered
2: the little stories from different areas So if you're interested in this local history of Lebanon, go and read Rasi. So this is an urban legend. Probably an urban legend, because by the time Rossi was writing, there were no jemaises anymore. And taking down the trees of jemaises were not part of an urban planning. Because when Beirut started expanding between 1840 and 1880, this is the period when this area was built up, it happened in stages. And it was the locals who actually took down the jemaises. Uh, Ottomans did cut trees in World War I in Al-Ammu'ah to feed the Hejaz railway train. But these are urban legends that sometimes tend to blame the other to things that have been done by locals. So we have to be very careful in these stories are beautiful, but sometimes, uh, uh, well, he's not writing. It's actually, uh, uh, it's not his invention. This story has been circulating. He's, he's just mentioning it. But given the historical evidence, no, this wasn't part of a larger Ottoman plan to cut the Jamaisi trees and allow the expansion. It took years for this um, forest to disappear. And we can trace this in maps between 1840 till 1900s in Beirut.
0: Thank you very much. I was curious to know a bit about, um, because oftentimes when we discuss Beirut, I guess we jump from the Greek time to the Ottoman time, and I was a bit curious about the Umayyad. To what extent, what, what was happening in Beirut, even if it was not an important city, what was happening in Beirut in the Umayyad, Abbasid, and Mamluk period? I, I, I know a little bit from Kamal Salibi's book about the buhtarid emirs and the spice trade and small things like that, but it seems like it was just more of a series of estates, and I'm I'm also curious what was the relationship of Beirut, not just to uh, the other maritime capitals, but to the other Lebanese cities like Saida, Tripoli, and to the hinterland, Sham, Halab, uh, Nablus, whatever. And then to what extent both its uh, presence in the Islamic period and its relationship to the other cities, to what extent does that still exist today?
2: This is an excellent question because it shed lights on a period that is largely not only unknown, but is some almost absent from our history manuals at school. So we mentioned 551 as the big uh, uh, earthquake. Uh, less than a century after the earthquake, you have a major shift in the Middle East in terms of geopolitical reality and culture. This is the period from 634 to 640 of the Muslim expansion. And there's a new force in the, in the area, a Muslim empire. The first really structured Muslim empire ruled by a dynasty were the Umayyads. And the capital of the Umayyads was Damascus. So Beirut back then, as other coastal cities, lost their importance for a simple reason. The Umayyads and the Byzantines were fighting in the sea and to control the Mediterranean. So trade that made these important ports prosperous stopped. However, caravan trade in the hinterland prospered. So, for the first time, since the beginning of Hellenistic rule, you have a shift of the trade routes that would make the cities of the hinterland, Damascus, Baghdad, later Aleppo, major hubs. Beirut was, uh, in terms of administration, a part of Jund Dimashk, uh, uh, one of the divisions of the Levant. And it was part of a subdivision ruled from Baalbaq. Mu'amalat Balbak. But there is a significant historical figure from Umayyad, Beirut, and there's a part of Beirut that still carries his name, Al-Uza'i. Have you heard about Al-Uza'i? He's a major figure in Muslim and Lebanese history. Uza'i is someone who, according to historical evidence, was born in Balbak. And he was born into a very poor family, and he was an orphan. However, this does not did not stop him from seeking knowledge. He went to study in Karaknouh. Karaknouh near Zahle was a major learning center. You would go there to learn Fiqh and Hadith. Then he went to Damascus. Then he went to Medina and Mecca. Bukharama, and he came back as a Alim, and he decided to come to Beirut. Who was a Ribaat. What is a ribat? So since they had to face repeated Byzantine military navy uh, operations, the coastal cities were transformed into military outposts called the ribat. So Uza'i decided to go and fight and also teach. And he came to Beirut and there's a beautiful story about two beautiful stories. Uh, if shall I say it? Or, no, please uh, go. Uh, yeah. On his way to Beirut, apparently while crossing Bashura, because the historical evidence mentions a cemetery, so this is the oldest cemetery, a Muslim cemetery in Beirut, he saw an old woman cleaning a tomb. And he asked, he asked her, What's the clo- how do I get to the city, or where is the city? She pointed to the cemetery and told him, that's the city. And then he asked her, where's the cemetery? She pointed to the city and told him, it's there. So he knew he had to be there. He settled in Beirut, uh, uh, started teaching in Azawiyah. It's still standing. You know this, uh, where you have, I love Beirut. This, uh, Why do I have to express love to my city in a foreign language? I would never <laughs> understand it. We're, we're using English now because this is the, the, the language of the podcast. But expressing love to, I love Beirut. Yani, uh, 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 with a heart. Yani. So this is next to a very important building, what remains of a major learning center, Azawiyah. And because he was also a mystic, he would retreat to a small village by the sea in Beirut called Hantous. Hantus is present-day Uza'i. In seventeen fifty, in seven fifty, I'm sorry, there was another major shift. A new dynasty, the Abbasids, ended Umayyad rule. And they moved the capital to Al Kufa and then to Baghdad. So this wasn't anymore the centre. And there were major peasant rebellion because the Abbasid imposed very heavy taxation on peasants in this area. So Muslim and Christian peasants were in uprising. The uh, uh, Christian peasants in Mnitra that were in uprising were heavily persecuted by the governor of Balbak, And he apparently uh, uh, adopted the policy of moving them to other uh, areas so he can pacify. And the Byzantines were also uh, uh, doing an incursion. Imam Uzayis sent a very harsh letter to the government saying that he has no right in persecuting the Christians because the Byzantines are in the area. So, and he reminded them of shurut Ahl al-Dhumma. Uh, uh, and this uh, letter played a crucial role in ending the persecution and in bringing back the Christian peasant to their villages. So this is why, according to historical sources, there were more Christian, Christians at his funeral than Muslims. And his tomb in Hantus became the center for Maqam al-Uza'i, who is still old family, Beiruti families still go there. Uh, uh, It's it's an important also burial ground. Riyadh al is buried there. Hmm. And sadly, it's one of these uh, uh, major historical moments. It's the only Abbasid era mosque in Beirut that is disfigured by bad planning. So, this is Beirut. Under Mamluk rule, Beirut was part of Mu'amalat Saida. You know, you have the two administrative entities. Uh, but it wasn't a major city. It was a second level hub of spice trade under the Bukhturid emirs of Al Gharb. It, really it was a city, of course. Okay. But it was a small city if you compare it to. Aleppo, Damascus, or, or of course, Cairo. And Tripoli, and Definitely Tripoli. Locally. So, the two major cities in present-day Lebanon, up until 1840, would be Tripoli and Balbak. Baalbek would be destroyed by an earthquake in uh, uh, the late 18th century, and Tripoli by the emergence of the new axis between uh, Beirut and Damascus. You
5: know, um, I have a comment. I don't have a question.
1: No cursing, mom. <laughs>
5: no. <laughs> I want to thank you. First of all, I want to thank you very much, Ronnie, uh, for uh, having this gathering, putting us all together, but especially to bring such a great man into your premiere. Um, that's you. my first time I've uh, you know, ever had a chance to meet with you or listen to you. I'm you honest. made me love history. Thank you. I was never good in history when I was a <laughs> child. Uh, you took me a, on a beautiful journey. Um, you uh, made us uh, f- feel like uh, we are really in the deep heart of the history of Beirut. Uh, we like you. We, uh, you. we wish you the best of luck, and most importantly, the best of luck to Rani. Uh, thank you so
1: much. Thank, thank you, thank 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 you. 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 Are you leaving? You have to to go. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. Thanks a
2: lot. Thank you. Thanks. I broke
1: the mic. Are there more questions?
2: Yeah, I can.
1: Please, where's your microphone? There
2: it is, okay. <laughs> uh, it's not related to Beirut, but I was watching a documentary the other day. They were talking about the Persian and Greek wars. Yes. And how the Phoenicians had the pact between uh, the Persians and the uh, Greeks that they won't interfere in this war and? and they won't attack them. So like they were kept neutral until like a Persian king forced the king of Tyre to uh, lend him his ships to attack Greek. Yeah. And then after that, like Alexander came back, this is why he attacked uh, the coast. And it was the first time this coast was attacked during those wars. How true is that? This is a very r- important period of time because we have to keep in mind we, we usually depict the Phoenicians as mischievous traders. Actually, there were a major naval force, a major military naval force we forget that the Phoenicians had an empire and they colonized and they controlled most of the Western Mediterranean. So all the major empires in the Middle East were always seeking to get access to the Mediterranean through controlling the little Phoenician kingdoms. The Phoenicians had four kingdoms here. The kingdom of Arwad, the island in Syria, the kingdom of Byblos, the kingdom of Saida and the kingdom of Sur. Sometimes the kingdom of Saida and Sur were one unified. So for the Persians, this area has two importance. First, you have access to the Mediterranean. You have a ready fleet that you can arm and send to fight the Greeks. Two, you have the heavy wooded highlands of Mount Lebanon and the Cedar forest of, I'll get to the Phoenicians fighting the Greeks, but you have to keep in mind, the cedar forests under Persian rule were administratively placed under a system called Paradisa. This is where we get the name Paradise. This is the gardens of the king where wood would only be used for the army to build the ships. The Persians attacked the Greeks in Salamis, in the battle of Salamis, while using Phoenician ships. And they forced the Phoenicians to actually fight alongside and pay heavy tribute to the Persian. And there was a major uprising in Saida where the Phoenicians burned the Paradisa under Persian control. So this is a period that we need to rediscover to understand how small entities, small political polities played a major role in a shifting period. The end of Persian rule and the beginning of Hellenistic rule. And one of the main reasons Why Alexander attacked the Phoenician cities? It's because the Persian fleet was quartered in these Phoenician cities. So he's not attacking the Phoenicians, he's attacking the Persians who have their navy here and blocking his way towards going to Egypt. And this is why he besieged Sur and took the city and destroyed it. And we have to keep in mind That this is the period when Phoenician, and under Hellenistic rule, the local Phoenician, the the Phoenician language would disappear. Then the the Phoenician religion would completely be merged into Hellenistic. There was a cultural change and shift. We don't find any more Phoenician inscriptions. The last time anyone spoke Phoenician here was a hundred years before Christ. Phoenicians survived in Carthage but it disappeared here. Even their gods became Hellenized gods. This is a cultural transformation that is not well studied in in our history. The names changed, their art changed, so they became diluted in the uh, bigger Hellenistic uh, culture and political entities.
1: Are there other questions?
2: Maybe I'll ask a question.
1: I'll try to wrap all of this up into a fairly short question, but you take your time in answering. There's a lot of layers in the way you describe our history. And going back to the beginning, and somewhere in the episode, I sense a sadness and that we're losing something you care about. Obviously, all of us care about, but you're able to hone in on it. And if you may, I'll try to marry that with continuity and change. So 551, an earthquake that shatters Beirut. It takes 12 centuries for it to become a hub once more. A world war that transfigures Beirut and throws us into modernity, the 20th century. On the way, there's a civil war, there's post-war paralysis, there's the blast, and here we are in 2023 what feels like at least to me in a way that I can reflect it feels like another version of that catastrophe. Maybe it's slower, maybe it's so slow that you get used to it but in my lifetime Beirut is unrecognizable Lebanon is changing do you see it that way too when you're able to look back in time and try to reflect on this stage of our history
2: you have a way of putting sadness in, uh, in a very rational structure. And of course I do, because we are living through a period where the essence of this country is being not only attacked, but assassinated. Killing the institutions that made Lebanon is, I don't want to go to the conspiracy theory, but is one of the pillars of changing this country. The blast is of course something that we can compare to the 551 uh, earthquake and disaster that made the city dormant for centuries. Mm -hmm. The essence of Lebanon is diversity, education, and freedom. What makes me sad is that not only we have the worst kind of political elite you can ever imagine, and the worst Kind of historical conjuncture. Add to that that the discourse, the political discourse in Lebanon, is all about the the little things. There is no bigger vision. We are fighting if we're Arabs or Phoenicians. Who cares? We are every little bit of our history. We are at the same time prehistoric, we are fossilized fish, we are Canaanites, Phoenician, Hellenistic, Roman, Byzantine, Rashidun, Umayyad, Abbasid, Fatimid, Crusader, Mamluk, early Ottoman, Ma'ani, Shehabi, Maqamiyya, Mutasarrifiya. We are everything. Why are we picking one historical period? Why do we need to identify as one segment of our rich diverse and long history i find that defying to logic it defies logic when they argue if they are, are and when they use dna of course there was no major shift in the population uh, 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 composition why are you surprised there was no big massacres and forced displacement this discourse about identity and ethnic identity and DNA is misleading. We, this is an idea of, this was a country of modern ideas, of institutions, of art, not of petty DNA discourse. There was something bigger than that, and by adding to this discourse, we are killing it. Add to that, the regression in, artist, in, in, in intellectual production, the regression in freedom. We are a country where we are afraid of saying what we think. The high levels of pollution coming down to the airport, you can see the smoke, haram. And this is not something that was afflicted by others on us, this is self-suicide. We are a country that is practicing self-suicide. And this is dangerous.
1: Before we wrap it up. I'm sorry, was there another question?
2: Oh, please, go However, ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. there is hope. World War I, the years that follow. World War I and the <laughs> years that... Only you
1: could say there is hope.
2: World War I. <laughs> the <laughs> years... The years that followed World War I were horrible. This was a region, an area, with a quarter of its population killed by a horrible famine, by a defeated empire. However, local agency, intellectuals, sometimes the best in the region, were able to build a country. Yes, this country wasn't for all in the beginning. Yes, it was elitist. Yes, it was a country that was built mainly by the Christians of the country. But the idea was never religious. And by the 1930s, other communities were part of the story. And now they are all part of the story to a certain extent. So it is time we accept that this is a country for all. This is a country that needs internal peace to rebuild itself, to reconcile with this history, not to be trapped by this history. History is there to be forgotten. As simple as that. Because as Jamal Kafadar, he's a major historian, Turkish origin, he works and lives in the United States. He says, I'm quoting, If history does not emancipate us, it serves tyranny. That's for him, not for me. What's happening in Lebanon, history is used in the political discourse as a tool of tyranny, as a tool, and Roni, I think you will agree with me, to justify one of the unseen enemies of Lebanon, conformity, conformism. Conformism in the name of Akhlaq, in the name of Qiyam, in the name of Maqamat, in the name of a very archaic vision of religion. All communities in Lebanon, you have this, religion is coming back in force. Public spaces are named after saints or religious figures. This is not healthy. Public, this is a public space, it should be secular. Beirut was one of the cities that had secular spaces. The, I was, uh, there's something that was uh, uh, some secular, uh, like, like when you put a religious element on a secular space, what are you doing? You're killing freedom of speech. Religious coming back to define roles and personal lives and the way you, you, you engage. This is also one of the cancers, eating Lebanon. So we have to keep in mind, go back to the agency of those first Lebanese from all communities and believe in the modernity of this country, in how it was built around freedom, diversity and education.
1: speak to
4: what we can hope for today. What do you see that encourages
2: you? Thinking for the future. We learn from the past. You're here, no? This is encouraging. We are trying to at least preserve the memory of this experience. It is a unique experience. All these communities trying to build a country that was so dynamic in, 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 in education, in intellect, in art, in finance, in trade, this is a beautiful story and it deserves to be told and heard. So there is hope, of course, but we don't need to go to delusional hope. Ta'er al-Finiq and this nonsense. <laughs> you have to keep in mind Ta'er al-Finiq is not even remotely related to the Phoenicians. <laughs> this is just a narrative that is used to justify destruction why do we need to be destroyed each and every time? This is not our destiny. Okay. And when we believe that it is our destiny, it's a catastrophe. No, it is not our destiny. We are builders. We are thinkers. We are pioneers. We're not people who lament and cry, and, ya Allah, This is nonsense. And this is dangerous nonsense. This is nonsense that justifies the situation and keeps the status quo. We need to free ourselves from these narratives. There is a way, it's difficult, it's extremely challenging, it's extremely dangerous, but we need to try and try because countries are not built in one day. It took years to make Europe a modern place. It took revolutions, civil war. We want that in one year? We want that and ya yeah, Allah. No, we need to stay it takes stamina, it takes energy, it's very tiring, but it's not impossible. The circumstances and the yeah, yeah, of course. in World War One were ten times more difficult than now. Let me end it in, in a funny note. You know, this, uh, we talk a lot, Eli and I, about this. In Lebanon, we have, Ya Allah, Jdudna had a better life than us. This is nonsense. Judna didn't have Panadol, they would die if they had a little infection. We live in the best period of history as humans. We have technology that our ancestors never dreamt of having. We have medical advancement, we have, we, why this urge to go back? We go back to understand, to get inspired, but not to (laughs) This was used as an argument by politicians in Lebanon. This nonsense was used. So keep in mind, history is a political tool in Lebanon. And when we free ourselves from this political tool, we break conformism, this idealized past. Our ancestors sometimes were horrible in terms of human rights, in terms of how they engage. So, liberate yourself from history, believe in freedom, diversity, and education, and let's try, at least try again to build a country. Because in 2005, 2019, what gives me hope is, we tried, even if on a short term, there's a failure, but who wins a war in one battle?
1: You have a way with words that's unmatched. Uh, William, do we have time for another question? Is there still? <coughs> Why not? Why not? Well, there was a question, I think, way in the back. I not
4: Uh, my question is like uh, if you want to take talk about Lebanon today uh, the political elites they tried and they successfully uh, structured the society uh, that they want that they can control more right there is no inclusion in this structure that they are trying and by 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 this structure of the society getting the legitimacy of the religious institutions any you know, whatever they say they are backed by the religious institutions, whether Muslims or Christians. How do you think we can confront this? Because when the elite controls, they are not only controlling the the society that they structure, but they also feed them with the education that they want. In this way, there is no inclusive institutions that can make you and the people sitting here to include their thoughts or to participate in the policies or the all these things that can lead us to what you're saying. Thank you.
2: Excellent question because it actually shed light sheds light on A horrible situation in Lebanon where you are distorting education and transforming education from a tool of progress into a tool of mass production of conformity, brainwash. Education shouldn't be about brainwash. Education should be about engaging with new ideas, with challenges, with democracy, with freedom. In Lebanon, sadly, education sometimes is used to produce brainwashed products that serve a certain religious and political idea. Another thing, uh, this is the uh, beautiful theory by Professor Daher in Lebanese University, the Lebanese elites are called the al-nukhba ghair al-mas'oolah, the irresponsible elite. And all you have to do is see how they are dealing, how they dealt with the blast, how they dealt with the memory of the civil war, and how now they are dealing. We are, I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but we are on tectonic plates that move. So the uh, 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 occurrence of an earthquake as destructive as the one in Syria and Turkey is possible. Any plans? What are they talking about? About the nonsense, about the presidential elections and and, uh, what kind of uh, the constitution is clear. Elect. So this is one of the reasons how you uh, uh, take away the essence of institutions like education to produce conformism. And this is one of the dangerous zones where Lebanon is going.
1: Let's do last question.
0: Anybody else?
1: Um, I got a bit philosophical here. Uh, then that's the
0: end of the episode. <laughs> Cuts there. Uh, um, uh, I think it's very interesting to construct this common lib, but I think that's true of the common lebanese idea of history but for me a central tension that runs through is the difference between the history that resulted in the construction of what is today lebanon and the history that happened on what is today lebanese soil uh because when we speak about the history of what became lebanon we're talking about a history that's centered in Lebanon libnan christian and Druze, and this kind of thing which is valuable but it's where all the focus has been but then there is another history that i don't i don't know unless i'm wrong i don't know if it was a huge contributor to the creation of what we know as today as, as, as of Lebanon, but it 's very important historically, and it happened on our soul so i 'm thinking about they, and, and this and this is a big root of a political problem because these communities can 't find a place in the modern history of what exists as Lebanese, the George Washington kind of story of our history, which pakar and and uh, Bashir uh, Shihab and all of these things like what about the how do we find a history that brings the greatness of Tripoli and the Shia of the genoub, how do we bring these things together into a common part of this history because it all happened here without necessarily so, thinking about the construction of Lebanon. Charles, sure. before, before
1: you answer, I'll, I'll just recommend if you guys haven't, watch our episode on the Beirut Banyan. There's an hour dedicated to that exact topic.
2: Oh, we, okay. got, we went I'll, deep. I'll, but I'll, I'll give you an answer. Yeah. This is very important and thank you for bringing that in. There is also a misconception about these areas being outside of the history of Lebanon and it is used for political reasons. These areas were ruled from Mount Lebanon. Jabal Amil was sub the, the local sheikhs of Jabal Amil were under the Ma'an and the Shihabs. The baks of Akkar were under the Shihabs. The Shihabs controlled for a large period of time the Beqa. The major cities were always outside of the rule, not because they don't want. This is how Ottoman administration functioned. So this narrative that these areas are alien to Lebanese construction and they never were is not very accurate. Because we can clearly identify a sense of belonging in the 18th century, not to Lebanon, of course, we can't speak about a Lebanese entity in the 18th century, but everyone of this hierarchical feudal system recognized that the shihabs came first. And this long period of shihabi rule, 1697, 1841, was one of the main factors that led to the emergence later of the Lebanese idea. Of course, the nucleus was Mount Lebanon, and the most vocal were the intellectuals. But already, you have to keep in mind that the textual evidence from Jabal Amel or Akkar is not yet brought into this history. They are part of this history. And using these elements to other these, to make of these regions the other is dangerous. And the lacking, it's 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 a long process, historians have started it, but already the way we teach, we usually teach the history of Lebanon, not, not as the history of Mount Lebanon. If you look closer, we teach it as the history of dynasties. Who's absent? The population. If you take the population of this area, and you study the way they lived, the way they interacted with the feudal lords, the way they ate, the way they celebrated, you will see how much of a shared experience it is. There's a big gap. These regions are still absent. And the way we are trying to bring them in is as controversial as the original version. We are trying to bring them in as religious communities we need to try to bring them in as rural or urban dwellers that happen to be part of a certain community. Because this communal identificator was not that important. We overestimate the power of belonging of Shia in the 18th century. Did they really, the peasants, did they really uh, express their belonging to one community? the maronites the sunni the shi the the, the order the same so we overemphasize because we don't have institutions we don't have a civic a solid civic identity so we tend to inflate the religious belonging to compensate the absence of a civic identity but i do agree we need to bring this region into the history We need to stop focusing just on the history of one region of Mount Lebanon. It's not all of Mount Lebanon. It's the region between Kisruen, Matan, and Shuf, and that's it. It happens to be that this is the historical nucleus. It has a a name in Ottoman. It's called Sanjak Beirut Saida. It's not Jabal Lebanon even. Because Jabal Lebanon didn't appear as an administrative term before 1841. connected
0: to
2: lima, but it was possible. never disconnected because Tripoli's food came from Char <laughs> so this idea that Beirut and Tripoli and Saida lived separately from Mount Lebanon, Kiev. Oh. so this idea that there were borders between Tripoli and Mount Lebanon, these are administrative. Denominations. There were no borders. You wouldn't cross a checking point. Hello, I'm going out of the Wilayat of Tripoli into Jibbet Bshari, Oh, please, you can't because you're Sunni and this is a Maronite area. No, you have to know that one of the one of the reasons why Ehden Bshari and al-Jibbet and Hasrul are important because they were on the road connecting Tripoli to Balbak and Damascus, and caravans would pass there, and the the, the caravans of Tripoli. Were usually conducted by Mkerriye from Hasroun or Eden, or so we, we, we still don't have enough material on the day-to-day dynamics between these areas. but they were not separate areas. They were different administrative entities, but not separated. Because by the way, the Hasrunis, Maronites, used to spend winter, Bahail Hasar Nebi Troblos so. If it was two different worlds, why would they go and spend winter there? No, no, of course. Of course.
0: It's
2: not so, different worlds, but they had, like, for example, had a to Homs, for example. You know, they are separate. They are and, separate. Uh, It's not separate. These are yeah. trade networks. You have exactly. to... The exactly. entire region is well connected. Right. We, sadly now, and this is... We live in a world less connected Precisely. Middle East than it was in 1914. Exactly. You could take the train from Marmkhail exactly. to Baalbek and from Baalbek to halab from halab to istanbul and from istanbul if you had money take the orient express and go all the way to paris that was still possible in the 50s as a practitioner from dubai to beirut now it's a challenge <laughs> because well, we have azza karame <laughs> and Anfuan. well especially Anfuan.
1: I'll, I'll say thank you for making <laughs> the journey from dubai today i'll i'll wrap it up this way um, the story of a city that, the way you described it, I thought was quite nice. It's literally on tectonic plates. It has suffered devastation through earthquake. It has suffered all forms of devastation over time. But the story of local agency and intellectuals that shine, I really like that. And even in this very difficult chapter of our modern history, you're shining. And you're making us, I'll like echo what my mom said earlier, I think you're making us love Lebanon once more. The, the, I'll end it with a quote. I, I can't do it in French because I don't speak French. I'll butcher it. Uh, I'll do it in English. Uh, it's on the ledge right next to Samir Asir's statue. It's a French quote. It's a sentence pulled from histoire de Beirut. I'll say it in English. It says, Beirut, a city that's extraordinary in its prosperity, outward in its wealth. A city that is extraordinary in its ruin, outward in its despair. And I think that story of prosperity and ruin, the thing that he tried to break, a cycle that we're stuck in, in your own magical way, you're breaking it. So I want to say thank you, Charles. Thank you to everyone that joined tonight. Thank you to Il. Thank you to William. Guys, it was a treat for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you don't follow Heritage and Roots Instagram, the podcast is across social media, audio platforms, and YouTube. Next week it's Zied Abhishekir. Wednesday seven to nine. He was here earlier, walking around. And guys, thank you. It means a
2: lot. Thank you, we did it.
4: You yeah.